So I want to give a shout out to our Kennedy campus because I will be at the Roshek building. We're having our grand opening tomorrow and uh, we're very excited about that. We've been working on this for quite a while and it's going to be an an incredible day and we're very excited about it. So uh, be praying about that because we we just think it's such such an important thing. Um, I want to ask you a question as we get started this weekend. Um, Have you ever been a good Samaritan? Have you ever been a good Samaritan? In other words, you've seen somebody in need, and it may be just a very simple thing. It may have been a little more involved, and you basically kind of felt the nudge by God to get involved, to do something, uh, rather than just, you know, it could be a flat tire or something like that. But but you, you know what I mean. There's there's multiple opportunities to be a good Samaritan. And... Um, that's generally how we think of a good Samaritan is somebody who sees somebody in need and says, oh, I can help there. And it could be a very small thing or it might be a, a little more involved thing. The whole concept of the good Samaritan idea is uh, it comes from a parable that Jesus told. And uh, it's a very interesting parable. It's in Luke chapter 10. And you might want to turn there. It's on page 792. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you don't have one on your phone, uh, this Bible on page 792, the chair Bible, will have that. And it's uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And he told this parable. It's very interesting. The context of this parable is he tells it to a religious teacher that he encounters one day. And the religious teacher comes to him, and he has an exchange with Jesus. And it has incredible implications. It it had implications for the the teacher, but it has incredible implications for us. And that's so that's what we want to look at. We want to look at this parable, but we want to look at the context of why uh, the religious leader asked this question. Because what we're going to find is we're a lot like this religious teacher. We are. We ask. We, we do the same thing. So let me read it because I think it has implications. Not only it has implications for our very souls. Look at what it says. This is Luke chapter ten, verse twenty-five, page seven nine two. One day, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question: "Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life?" Jesus replied, "Well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it?" The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. And here's the story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was the neighbor to the man who attacked was attacked by bandits. Jesus asked, 
The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus says, yes, now go and do the same thing. Now, in our passage, there's really three important questions that are asked, and we want to look at each one because they all have implications. The first one is by the man to Jesus, and he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this question is, uh, this man is an expert in the religious law. He's a teacher. Uh, But he has an axe to grind, and he's trying, I believe, he's trying to catch Jesus Because I think he thinks that Jesus is playing fast and loose with the law. And so Jesus is, you know, welcoming these sinners. They don't obey the law. The scholar, I believe, is trying to prove that Jesus had, he had no regard for the law. So he asked, uh, she asked Jesus, what must I do to be accepted by God, to be justified, to be saved, to have eternal life? What do I have to do? And Jesus uh, uh, says, uh, Basically, uh, Jesus, and by the way, when you're ever, ever in a situation where somebody asks you a question, you don't know the answer, ask them a question. Maybe it's a clarifying question, whatever, but it'll give you more time to think and it'll, it'll help you to understand kind of where they're coming from and what their motive is. And that's essentially what Jesus does. He says, well, you know the law. You're an expert in the, the law of Moses, the religious law of Moses. What does it require? So the man basically comes back and he states the requirements of the law. And he boils it down to these two laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he correctly boils it down into those two commands. Uh, Jesus agrees with the man and he just, he just simply says, okay, go do it. <laughs> you know, now I think Jesus is, is, knows that there's no way in the world that this man can do it. There's no way in the world that anyone can actually do this and, and carry it out perfectly. And I, I think that the, the point of the man was, um, I don't think I can either. <laughs> so I need to qualify what that is. And I think that's where he's going with this. The man, uh, though it says, he, he hears this and he says he, he says he wanted to justify himself. So I think he's trying to qualify the law for himself. He wanted to limit the law to certain areas so that he could justify himself. In other words, he would say, I don't fully keep this, but I don't know if I'm supposed to fully keep it or if I have to fully keep it. I think if I keep it partially, that's good enough. And this 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 begs the question of does Jesus accept us if we keep most of if we're a pretty good person and better than most and a lot of people think that a lot of people think well i'm going to go to heaven i'm not the best person i'm not the worst person but i'm better than average and if i'm better than average i've got a good shot at it essentially that's what this man is saying the man wants to qualify the law though the man though is assuming something he's assuming what most of us and i would believe every one of us in this room was born to believe that i can do something I can do something that will justify, save, or rescue me. There's something that I can do. Go to church, believe in God, be a good person, give my money, give my time. Uh, Whatever it is, there's something I can do that will justify me, something that will save me, something that will gain me heaven. And Jesus challenged this common notion uh, of the man and uh us, if we're honest about it. Uh, it's a notion that most of us uh, carry and I think we were born with. And here's the principle I want you to see. We, this is the, the truth about the law or trying to keep the law. We must see that the law is a way of life, but it's not the way to life. The law is a way of life, but it's not a way to life. The law will never save anyone. 
but a, a person who is saved will try to keep the law. And what I mean by the law is they'll try to live a, a moral and decent life as it's laid out in the scriptures. But in the scriptures, justification is an act of God. It's not an act that we can do for ourselves. It's something God has to do for us. It's something that, that God declares us just. It's something that God does, not us, because only God can justify mankind. Only God can justify us. We can't justify ourselves. God justifies us on the basis of what Christ has done. That what Jesus did is he bore our guilt. He took our shame. And when we call upon the Lord Jesus, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. His, our guilt becomes his. All of this it was accomplished on the cross. And that's what the last words Jesus uttered was what? It is finished. In other words, he came from heaven to earth because we needed a rescuer. We needed somebody who could save us. Somebody who would give his life so that we could live. Somebody who, who could take our sin and take our guilt. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He became what John said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We need a Savior, right? Uh, the man, however, he's like a, a lot like us. Um, he is seeking to self-justify. And every one of us does that. I think we're born with a self-justifying gene. There's, there's something in our DNA that every one of us, and you know what? This is a wide gene because, you know, whenever you're caught and you're guilty and you've done something and somebody calls you on it, what do you do? Well, it's not my fault. If you hadn't said, if you hadn't done that, and what are we doing? We're self-justifying. We're saying, well, it's not really my fault. I, I have a part, a portion of it, but it's not my fault. And, and, and we're, we all have that built into us. I remember, remember there was another story that Jesus told. It was about the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And they both went to the temple to pray. Do you remember that parable? Very interesting parable. Uh, the Pharisee, this is the temple, this is the prayer that he prayed. And it seems to say in this parable that the, the, the Pharisee was able to look over and notice the tax collector who was on his face before God in the temple. So he, basically, Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee said this. This is what the Pharisee said. Notice, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a robber, not an evildoer, not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of what I get. How many of you give a tenth of what you actually get? Uh, this is a pretty righteous guy. This is a pretty, this is a, he put his money where his mouth is. He literally is doing, you know, so he's living a moral life. But and then he points over and thank God I'm not like him. Well, what about him? Well, the tax collector was a hated group of people by the Jews. And he prayed this simple prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, two men went up to the temple to pray that day. One man left justified. The one tried to what? Justify himself. I'm good enough. I give enough. I do enough. I believe enough. I'm not like him. I'm better than average. A lot better than him. What did the, what did the tax collector say? I'm a mess. I can't even look up to heaven. I can't even lift my head. I need help. Help me. He humbled himself. Jesus says one person left justified that day. And it was, came down to one simple thing. The first man came in and bragged about all that he had done. 
he tried to self-justify. The second man came in and said, Jesus, God, you're going to have to justify me because I can't. And, and I, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever come to that place? Have you come to a place to see you can't justify yourself? You know, that's what this religious leader is doing to Jesus. He's saying, you know, what, what do I have to do to justify myself? And Jesus is saying, keep the law perfectly. Well, I can't. So I've got to, you know, I've got to, I've got to, uh, I've got to dumb the law down somehow. The man uh, was self-justified, is condemned. The man who begins with God be merciful was justified by God. So the expert in the law has an axe to grind, and he asks Jesus another question. He's, he basically comes to a place where he realizes I can't keep the law the way it's written. So I have to qualify it. We do that all the time, don't we? Uh, we say, well, I know it says, uh, I'm just, uh, listen, if you drive over a little over the speed limit, I'm, it's, that's between you and God. That's not my point. Um, but if the speed limit is 65 and you say, well, I know it says 65, but they really won't pull you over until you're like eight miles over the speed limit or whatever it is. I don't know. And again, again. Please don't take this knowledge and say, hey, I'm, I know I'm speeding, but my pastor said that if I'm driving this fast, you shouldn't pull me over. That's not what I'm saying. But we justify it. We say, well, I know that's what it says, but that's for the idiot drivers who don't know how to control their car. I'm a fabulous driver, and I could drive a lot faster. Or, you know, and you, can make, you can make excuses for anything, right? You can do that. We do that all the time. So what, what, the, what the, this religious teacher is trying to do with Jesus, he's trying to say, I know that you say that, but really you don't really mean that. What do you really mean? And so he asks this question. What's the question? Who's my neighbor? So Jesus goes on to tell him the story of the Good Samaritan. Most of us have heard this story one, from one time or another, but here, here it is, you know, the summary. A Jewish man, is, and it's important to keep the, the, the uh, nationality, it's important to keep that because that's a big part of this story. The Jewish man is traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He's mugged, he's left for dead. Now first a priest comes by. Does nothing. He looks, but does nothing. And then a Levite, a temple assistant, comes by. He looks, but again, does nothing. It's conceivable that both of these men are walking it from, this, from the same, you know, origi- original point uh, down past the man. So it's, it's easy to think that if the priest walked by and didn't do anything, the Levite could say, well, if the priest didn't do anything, who am I? I'm lower on the totem pole than he. I mean, I'm not, I'm not as important as he. If he made the judgment, so there's a lot. There could be a lot of reasons for justifying not doing anything. They both, though, here's the point. They both see uh, the man left for dead, and they pass by. It says on the other side. Now, many people think that this road was really narrow. <laughs> it wasn't like it was a two-lane highway or, you know, that you're driving Jeeps or, you know, up and down this. This was kind of a path, okay? They didn't have cars and, you know. So it's very likely that when he said he passed on the other side, these guys are st- having to step around and, st- you know, it, it was a tight quarters. Um, secondly, their role for the priests and the Levite was to help the poor. That was their job. They were to give alms to the poor. That was, they were to help those in need. And so uh, this was part of what they were called to do. Uh, the other thing that some have pointed out 
they were busy uh, dealing with it in the temple, and so they had to be clean. They could become unclean by touching a dead body. So it's, it's surmised by some scholars to say they were, they were worried about touching the man because they thought, if I touch him, I'll become unclean and I'll, there'll be a period of time where I will not be able to serve the Lord. So you could justify your actions saying, well, I can't just stop for this guy because I've got all these other people that I'm not going to be able to serve if I do that. There's, in other words, there's a whole bunch of reasons and ways that they could justify not doing anything. Let me give you one more. This stretch of road that he's beaten on and left for dead has been called the the pass of blood. It was a place where a lot of bandits would come and rob people and beat them up and leave them for dead. So it's very likely that this uh, these uh, two men had walked by, and just the fact that it, that that. Uh, they were afraid that this was something that had happened very recently and that the bandits could still be there would cause them to say, this is not a safe place. We need to get out of here or I need to get out of here. I need to keep moving because the robbers could still be right around the corner or hidden somewhere. And they might have thought we're in great danger staying here. So there's, in other words, there's a, and haven't you found that when you go to play Good Samaritan, you can find multiple reasons why you shouldn't, why you can't, why you won't get involved. And this is, this is how it goes. But then the surprise of the story comes. The next person that comes by sees the man and immediately gives him aid. And it's not a priest. It's not a Levite. Now, the priest and Levite would not just be Jewish men. They would be Jewish men who are high in the, the you know, society structure. They would be the, like the higher end. They would be well-respected in that. And, and who comes and helps? Not a Jew, a Samaritan. Now, we don't today get that. We're told in the scripture that the Samaritans were hated. You look at John chapter 4, the woman at the well, and you see this passage where you see that it's... And Jesus does this on purpose because he wants to make a point. Now, when you think of Samaritan, you need to think of things like this. You need to think Taliban. You need to think pedophile. You need to think something like people who kick little puppies, okay? Uh, Nazi nun killers. These are, they were seen by the Jews as just low life, horrible people. People that don't deserve the breath that they draw. That's essentially where it comes down to. So Jesus makes out the hero of the story, somebody that the Jewish people would look on and say, I wouldn't even waste spit on this person. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews, and this hatred went generations back, and it was really, really deep. But in this story of Jesus, the Samaritan is the hero. He's the only one who stops this man who was beaten and left for dead. He's the only one who stops. He's the only one who cares. He's the only one that takes a risk. So for the Jewish people reading the story, to say good Samaritan was an oxymoron, it was. There are no good Samaritans. 
But the Samaritan, what did he do? He cared for the man at his great expense. He meets the man's basic needs through his costly and rich, risky actions. It was incredibly dangerous, and it was costly work for him. And then I want to ask you a question as we talk about this idea of being a good Samaritan. Can we really serve others without putting ourselves out? Some of us think, well, I'll be a good Samaritan as long as it doesn't cost me too much, take me too long, as long as I, I don't have to. Uh, it, if, if it's not too much work, well, I'll be a good Samaritan. If it's not too much work, I mean, if it's hard, I don't know if I really want to. And uh, this man basically put his life at jeopardy. He took money out of his pocket and said, if the, if the expense goes further, I'll take care of that too. Um, so, Jesus finally asked the question. So the man asks, you know, the man's asking, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, uh, so, so the third question is, the man asks, well, to whom, is, to whom must I be a neighbor? And Jesus basically answers the question. Um, he takes the man's question and twists it a little bit. And he answers and he says, how should I be a neighbor? He takes who off the table and says, it doesn't matter who. The whole thing of Jew Samaritan was to say, you don't get to choose. You don't get to choose who your neighbor is going to be. You don't get that choice. Your your only choice is how can you be a neighbor, not who is going to be your neighbor. And so Jesus turns the question on its head, and he turns it from who is my neighbor to how can I be a neighbor. Um, Being a neighbor means, very clearly from the parable, Meeting the basic needs of the people around you, even people you, who don't share your beliefs. We say, well, I like to help people who are nice and people who believe what I believe and people, you know, that get me and I get them. But this is saying, no, 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 no. This is saying you just help people, period. You don't ask, do you believe the right thing about this and this and this? Are you the right political party? You know, whatever. You don't do that. You just say you're in need and I can help you. Uh, Jesus was saying to this self-justifying man, I want you to love everyone you meet sacrificially. It's, it's not enough just to help. It's to say it's got to cost you something. And, and sometimes it's going to cost you something. Now, there are people and good people who are motivated because they're enlightened. They're educated people and they want to help the poor. And they'll seek policy and programs that will help people. But it will finally take them too far. And they'll say, that's further than I, it's, that's way out of my comfort zone. I can't go that far. I don't mind having a general policy and a program. But when you go, when you ask me to go that far, it's too far. I can't go that far. I can't go that far. It's out of my comfort zone. And, and I'm going to have to walk by this time. There's other uh People And I would say religious people who say I'm motivated by the commands of the Bible. I, I know the Bible tells me to care for the poor and uh, I need to follow the commands of the Bible. And that can lead to a relig- uh, kind of a, a legalistic religious duty and guilt. You should do it because it's the right thing to do. And, and shame on you if you don't and you get that guilt going. By the way. Uh, before you think that Christianity is the only uh, world religion that teaches that <coughs> you should help the poor, most world religions teach that. 
So uh, here's the problem, though. If you're motivated, if your only motivation is because of guilt, uh, guilt will never take you where Jesus wants you to go. He'll never take you that way. Guilt is a short-term thing, and it works as parents. We know because we've used it. But guilt is not what God uses when he wants to really uh, transform our hearts. In the end, morality and religious duty can only take you so far. Now, I want to just stop for a moment, and I want to just mention one thing. Because I've encountered this over the last uh, year or two with people. Too many of us carry a defective view of our Father in heaven. What do I mean by that? I mean, there are, there are people that I talk to on a regular basis who say, God is mad at me, God is punishing me, God has left me, God doesn't love me, God doesn't care about me. And I would say, well, why? And they'll say, well, I've done this, or I'm, I don't know, or uh, there's some things going on in my life, and I think he's angry with the decisions I made or whatever. And, and they'll, they'll feel shame, they'll feel guilt, they'll feel rejection, they'll feel anger, they'll feel um, that God is punishing them. And it's very interesting to me, and, and I, I generally, and I'm going to do this to you because I'm, I expect that there's some of you in the audience. Do you think and have you thought that God, well, let me ask you this. Do you think you're, if you're a parent, do you think you're a good parent? Most of you would say, yeah, I, I think I'm okay. I'm not, the, I'm not the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get over the disclaimers. Generally, we think we're, we're, we're pretty good parents, all right? So when our son or daughter disobeys a command or makes a horrible decision or does something wrong, um, how do you respond as a parent? If you're a good parent, you respond, you're disappointed, you're upset, you, you may punish them, but you punish them because you want them to learn so that they don't hurt themselves or hurt others. That's, and you want them to learn from this. So it's a, it's a teaching if you're a good parent. Okay, I get that, you know. But you don't say, I disown you. I hate you. You're the worst. I don't even know why you're still here in this house. Why, why do you think I even care about you? I mean, most of us, if we heard that from a parent and we were watching it, we would go, what's wrong with you? That's not good. That's not. If you're a good parent and you don't do that to your kids, why do you think he would? Why do you think your father in heaven would treat you that way? If it's not good behavior as human parents, why is it a good behavior from our heavenly father? And why do we believe that lie from the pit of hell? Why do we believe that there's a God in heaven who loves us, who sent his son? What happens, let me ask you this as a parent, what happens when your kids make horrible decisions and you know they're going down a path that's just going to bring heartache and pain to them? Your heart is broken. You're busted up. Some of you, that's your fear. That they'll go down and they'll hurt themselves, they'll hurt others. And you just don't want to ever see that because it breaks your heart. 
That's, that's what good parents do. Well, I've got to tell you something, and this might be disappointing to you. God is a billion times better as a parent than you are. He's horribly better than you are. That's bad language, but you get my, my meaning. He is so much better of a parent that you shouldn't even call yourself a parent. That's how good he is. So why do we put that picture on God? Why do we do that? Just saying, all right? Nothing to do with the message, but uh, we have to get away from this perception of God that the minute we, we sin, we, do, we go down the wrong path, the minute he's just waiting for us to smack us. Or just going to say, oh, I'm just, you know, the, the, the father that just kind of like, oh, boy, yeah. Don't talk to me. Don't tell me you're, you know, we have nothing going on here. We got to get, get, get past that. Now, here's the thing. Let's wrap up this whole Good Samaritan thing. So we get to this place where we know what it means to be a Good Samaritan. It's not asking, who is my neighbor? It's saying, how can I be a neighbor? And I can't put limitations on that. But I also got to, I've got to get to a place where I realize I can't self-justify myself. That no matter how good I am and how well I keep the law, I'm not going to keep it perfect. And that's why I needed Jesus to come from heaven to earth to keep the law perfectly for me because I, I couldn't do it. And, and, and that to be a good – now, and your motivation to be a good Samaritan will only go far if you're motivated by guilt. It only goes so far with saying, I've got to will myself to be a better good Samaritan. You can't do that. So let me tell you the solution to your motivation problem. You have to ask yourself this. What if you were left dead on the road? What if you needed to be rescued? What if your only hope was in someone who owed you nothing, who didn't have to give you the time of day? What if that were the case? Well, that is the case. That is the case, and that's what the gospel tells us. You know what the gospel tells us? The gospel tells us that we were the ones that were left for dead on the road. We were dead to, we were dead to life. We were dead, we, we were dead to sin. We, we were sinners. We were separated. We were, we were headed, to, headed to hell, basically. The gospel tells us, the Bible tells us, that it's us. We were left for dead. We had no hope. We were lost, dead in sin. And the rescuer did come. He came for you and me. He did come to rescue us, and his name is Jesus. But he didn't just risk his life. He gave his life. The good Samaritan, no, not a good Samaritan, the great Samaritan. The great Samaritan gave his life. He had no good reason to save you. He got nothing out of it. In fact, it cost him. It, it cost him. It cost him his reputation because he was mocked. He was ridiculed and spit upon. His physical health. It cost him his physical health because he was beaten, whipped, nailed to a Roman execution cross, and crucified as a common criminal. And he did it all for you to rescue you because you were dead on the side of the road. This is saving grace. This is radical grace. I was saved by somebody who didn't know me. And yet he risked it all for me. That is the only thing that can really be, bring change from the inside out. See, here's the point. You'll never become a radical neighbor until you've been rescued by the Good Samaritan. 
until you understand how he rescued you and what it cost him. You'll never be motivated. You'll never have the, the power and the ability to, to reach out and to really truly minister to other people. But when you see that you were the one left dead on the road and he came and rescued you, you were dead and he saved you. When you see him as your good Samaritan, you can become the good Samaritan that God desires. When you receive his radical grace, you can give radical grace. So let me just close by asking you this. Do you know the great Samaritan? Do you know that you're dead on the road in sin? And then unless he comes and rescues you, you're dead. You're lost. You're helpless. You're hopeless. There's no self-justifying. You need a rescue. And that rescue came from heaven to earth. And his name is Jesus. And he lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. And his last words were, it is finished. And the Bible says, if we call upon the name of the Lord, we shall be saved. Have you done that? Have you given your life to the good Samaritan, the great Samaritan? Because when you give your life to the great Samaritan, and you realize and begin to, to, to un, you know, kind of peel back what he has done for you, your heart will grow. You, you, you will no longer say, I'll help you, but not you, because you're the wrong kind of person. You'll say, I just help you, because he didn't show any partiality. He just saved me. Changes everything. Changes everything. Stand with me. Let's pray. So, Father, this isn't something we can just manufacture. It doesn't come from guilt. It doesn't come from trying to be good and to help people out. Those are all good things. It only comes when we realize that we were the one left dead, uh, left for dead, bloodied on the road, and the great Samaritan came and rescued us and paid the price. Paid the price. For us, so that we who are dead could be made alive. And he didn't just risk his life, Father, he gave his life. And as we begin to understand what Jesus has done for us, the great Samaritan, we will become the good Samaritan that you call us to be. That we will love everyone and seek to serve others sacrificially. It's very likely, Father, that this week you're going to bring opportunities in our lives to serve others. We can make a million excuses. But help us to remember what Jesus did when he saw us laying on the side of the road. That he acted sacrificially, and he didn't just risk his life. He gave it. May we love as we've been loved. May we serve as we've been served. We pray this in Jesus' name.